Hey friends, welcome back to the podcast. Yeah, well, yeah, it is. It's the first episode of 2022. You survived the new year, and this episode was actually recorded in December, so shout out to my new friend, April, and I'm really sorry that it's just getting posted here in January, but, you know, Christmas came, New Year's came, people got sick, all of that stuff that happens this time of year. And I ended my sabbatical and started back at my congregation. So just still trying to find my sea legs, I guess, as I was editing this episode and going back and listening. Um, just a great conversation with April. She and her husband are co-pastors in Nebraska, and she has recently uh, written her first book published by through, through traditional publishing. We talk a little bit about... Um, she did a, a fictional self-published work, and th- but this is her first nonfiction through a traditional type publishing, and it's called The Sacred Pulse. Of course, the link for it will be in the show notes. Uh, we also mentioned two other books. Those are in the show notes as well, and I'll also uh, tag her on Instagram so you can follow her there and reach out, check out her book. Uh, this book will be a great read for any season. We talk about that idea of, you know, we want our works to, in some ways to be somewhat timeless. And I think that this is definitely, um, this is definitely a written work that will be timeless just because of the, you know, hu- human principles um, that are in here of us relating to one another and relating to God, but probably more than ever, it would be beneficial. So if you're just trying to uh, bring your anxiety levels down, uh, slow your life down a little bit, I feel like the pandemic has has sped everything up rather than slowed things down. I know people keep talking about, oh, I wish we could just get back to normal and do all of our things that we normally do. And and I'm still trying to figure out when they have time to sit down and and do nothing. But you will uh, enjoy this episode. Uh, anyway, just good conversation. She's a great conversationalist, uh, very easy to talk to. And I, I appreciated that. I really had very little editing to do on this. I so I guess there's no excuse. Sorry, April. It took me so long. There really wasn't that much to do, but you will enjoy it. Uh, she's a great conversationalist. Follow her on Instagram. And I am looking at doing a new, another episode coming up. For the last two years in January, I have done something on meeting with your district board. And so this is something specific for my denomination. I'm going to do a part three. Uh, I did the first one pre-pandemic, and then I did one last year in the middle of a pandemic. And I feel like here we are two years out, and things are changing so much. Uh, I, I I guess I feel like I want... There's some things that I said maybe in those first two episodes that I want to go back and either modify them or I just want to share other elements about meeting with your district board. So if there's something specific you want me to talk about, will you send me a DM? Because I'm going to be recording that in the next week and I'd like some feedback from you. Anyway, enjoy the episode. See you soon. We've been trying to tell better stories about women and clergy and the church because we really need to tell better stories 
Instead of just complaining about it, what if we flood the airwaves with something different? Hey, welcome. So welcome to the podcast. And it's that is great that we somehow got connected through your Twitter followers. Yeah. Um, you have to shoot me your Twitter Twitter handle, so I'll put that on there. I know at least one of them was somebody in my congregation. So this is the first time we've met, and you're way up in Nebraska. What part of Nebraska are you in? I am in the panhandle of Nebraska, about a half hour from Wyoming. I'm guessing you already had, have you already had snow? We did, but you know what? It's supposed to be 75 degrees later this week, which seems no way. unreal for December. Yeah. I know. Um, so you're up in Nebraska. I know you're a co-pastor because we already going to talk about that. But first, tell me a little bit about yourself and then how did you get your call to ministry? Sure. I have lived all over the United States. Well, mostly in the Western United States, but Nebraska is my eighth state. Whoa. And, and um, I grew up always knowing that God wanted me to do something. I went to a neighborhood backyard Bible club that some people in our neighborhood put on every summer. It was like outdoor vacation Bible school. And they would talk about um, missionaries who would share the story of Jesus everywhere that they went. And I thought, oh, I just love that. And I just remember feeling that God wanted me to do something like that. But yeah. at that time, I had never seen a woman preach. I, um, even though the church that I grew up in when I was younger had female elders and deacons, I don't know why it just never occurred to me that women could preach. Um, and then when I was in high school, we attended a congregation that um, very much had strict gender roles. Um, mm -hmm. There were no female um, leaders that were um, ordained in any capacity. And then I went to college where that idea was kind of reinforced that that's just not what women do. And yet, despite all of that, I remember in my theology of culture class, we had to keep a journal of our daily thoughts. And I remember writing very specifically, I feel God calling me into ministry today, but I don't know what that means. Yeah. So I really wrestled with it. And it was not very long after that, that I met my husband. And when I met him, he told me, you need to know that I feel called to be a pastor. And not everyone feels called to be a pastor's spouse. And so he said, I just want to get that out of the way and make sure that you're okay with that. And I thought, that's fabulous. I think that's wonderful. But I still had a couple of years left in college. And so he wanted to wait till I was finished with school before he went on to do any more schooling for himself. And the closer it got to him enrolling in seminary, the more I started to dread being a pastor's spouse mm -hmm. and thinking, I don't know if this is really what what I'm called to do, but I had said yes <laughs> when we were first dating and it was just an idea. And then we went and we visited a couple of seminaries. And I remember sitting in the classroom, observing with my husband, and I thought to myself, it would be so awesome to be able to be here too. And mm -hmm. we met with the admissions director. I don't, he just must have had some kind of sense. And he said, have you ever considered both of you attending seminary? We've got some scholarships for people who attend together. Um, so if you, you know, are interested in that, that would be a possibility. And we've really thought about it. We prayed about it. I applied for some jobs in the community and we decided we'll just try seminary together for one semester. And if it's terrible, then we'll do something else. And one semester led to another. I had no idea we'd be called to co-pastor. I had never heard of co-pastoring. 
but it just so happened in our graduating class, between our class and the class one year above us, there were 11 clergy couples. Wow. Yeah. And they all kind of discerned and did different things. Some of them have served together in ministry. Some have served separate churches. Um, Some of them, one became a parish minister and the other went into social work or um, biblical counseling or something like that. But we had a lot of examples and people to talk to about what this would practically look like. But all through that journey, I just, my one hesitation was I can, I can be a pastor, but I can't preach. I don't know why that was just lodged in my mind that everything was open to me except for that. So was it, so was your resistance, was it in, you didn't think that you should as a woman or was it based on your, what you thought you were able, like capable of? Yeah. So you're gifting. So I had never, I had never had an example. So there was that limitation. I couldn't envision women preaching. I had never seen it, but then in high school and in college, very much got surrounded by the theological idea that women weren't allowed to preach. And I had always been passionate. I'm an introvert. Me too, same. Yeah. And so the idea of public speaking is, of, of course, terrifying. But I had always enjoyed giving speeches. I'd always enjoyed, I, we did mock trial when I was in high school and I had, you know, I was the quiet, shy person who never said anything. But I remember my classmates saying, boy, she could be a lawyer um, because I, I uh, found energy in, in speaking and offering things to others. Um, and so I really had to work to deconstruct that idea that women weren't allowed to preach but it was important to me to take the Bible seriously. I didn't want to just say, well, I feel this way, even though the Bible says this. And so I underwent a process of study and reading and discernment. I wanted to make sure that I wasn't just doing what I wanted to do. And I remember in seminary, this is one of my favorite things. My new Testament teacher was teaching on the book of first Corinthians and he got to the chapter about women are to be silent and he skipped it. Whoa. And I raised my hand and I said, you can't skip that. I need to know. I need answers. And he, he um, looked at the classroom and bless his heart. He said, is there anybody else here that really wants to talk about that? And everybody put their hands up. And he said, I'll tell you what, if you want to gather here at seven o'clock this evening, let's do it. Let's talk about it. And so we did. And it was the first time that I had heard someone make a compelling biblical argument that God calls women to teach and lead just the same as men. Um, So that was really the beginning of my journey. That was a profoundly important um, time for me. Wow. And that's so fabulous. And how the spirit rose up in you and that holy, my friend calls it holy boldness, right? To say, let's not back off. Let's talk about this you know, and obviously what a, a, a divine, uh, prevenient, you know, moment of prevenient grace in your life yeah. where God would put the right pat, the right professor in there, who's willing to dig deeper in that scripture. I think there is a, a tendency for people to see women who answer that call and to assume that they haven't done the work. Like they haven't yeah. done the theological work. They've just skipped over and said, oh no, uh, we're in a new era. It's whatever, it's the 20th century, it's the 21st century, you know? And when most of us really, we have done the work, we've we've dug deep, 
not just in our own relationship with Christ, but also scripturally and looked at those different aspects. What's what seminary were you at? I'm curious. Sure. I went to Western Theological Seminary in Holland, Michigan. Okay. Yeah, so not horribly far from you. Yeah, sort of, sort of in my backyard. Yeah, um, and one of the things about Western is that they it's very important to them that everyone on their faculty embraces the idea that men and women can both serve and are called. And so I was surrounded with all kinds of wonderful examples. And actually, the very first time I saw a woman preach was at seminary. Western, are they affiliated with a specific denomination or are they non-denominational? Yes, they are a Reformed Church in America seminary. And so that's how, and you said that that's how you're actually ordained in Reformed Church of America, RCA. Yes. Right. Even though I'm serving a Presbyterian church, they've got an agreement where they can share ministers, which enabled us to come out here to Western Nebraska. Well, and they'd be, they'd be theologically, they'd be, you know, aligned, you know, that kind of that part of the whatever Christian family tree. Um, And and you're, so I'm guessing your husband's also ordained RCA. He actually just recently transferred his ordination into the PCUSA. He didn't have to do that. Um, It was just a choice that he decided to make. Wow. So you're both ordained out in different denominations. That's yes. really weird. <laughs> yeah. Well, and you know, serving the same church. So, <laughs> I, you know, I think it's great to, I mean, one of the, one of the purposes of this podcast too, is just to show people the diversity of the Christian family tree and how God is using um, men and women, specifically women, obviously to lay down inroads for the kingdom. And we're doing it all over different denominations, different gifting, um, but, you know, God is using us, using women in, in powerful ways to, to make a difference. And we should not be having 50% of the body of Christ sitting on the bench. If we That's really right. believe that this is uh, a worthwhile, if the gospel is worthwhile. So you started that process. And then at some point you started writing, were you, a, would you consider yourself a writer before seminary, seminary or did that start after you got on this journey to be a pastor? I started writing in fourth grade. Wow. Yeah. I remember reading Madeline Langle's Wrinkle in Time series. And that was the first time that I realized that the words that we write have the ability to create entire worlds for people to inhabit and imagine. And I remember I wrote shortly after I read that series, I wrote my own version of that series in a little short story. And so I've always been writing Um, through high school. I predominantly wrote poetry. Um, And then in college, I don't know if you remember Zanga, the blog platform, Um, but oh, I loved Zanga. I wrote on that every day. Um, And so I've always, I've always been writing and I've always had in my mind that I wanted to write a book but I'm a person that likes so many different things. I have so many hobbies, so many interests. And so trying to think of a topic that I could live with and write on and wrestle with for years always really intimidated me. I would start things and not finish them. I did back, I think it was 2007, I think it was, I did National Novel Writing Month. Um, oh yeah, and, and yeah I've done that a couple times. Yeah, I've done that a couple times, and I've written some fiction novels that way. But without that deadline, and also the freedom, like, hey, no, maybe no one will ever read it, but you can still write it. That was the only way I got those finished. Fiction has never been my—that's not my thing right now. I'm doing—I'm working on two different long pieces, similar to you. I'm like, blogging is 
look, it's 500 to a thousand words. Yes. You get it and then you get it done and it's out there and you can switch to a whole new subject tomorrow, you know, right? Like, (laughs) you know, but you know, a full length manuscript. Oh man. The, just the, yeah, wait, we're still doing the same thing today. (laughs) We're still writing the same thing today. Um, And yours is the sacred pulses. Is this your first published work? I self-published one of the fiction novels that I wrote during NaNoWriMo and I did a horrible job. Like I just rushed it. So when you go through and read it, there's all these typos and all these different things. Um, But this is my first traditionally published book. And even though it's on a cohesive topic, the sacred pulse, I kind of found my my little um, area of comfort because each chapter is on a specific area of life. And so in some ways it's almost like 12 little pieces. Oh, wait, who did you publish through? This is published through Broadleaf Books, which is an imprint of 1517 Media. Um, I've had a few authors on here, but I know that there are a lot of people who are listening who thought about this idea, or maybe they have some stuff written, but they're like, Mm -hmm. I don't know about that. So just talk a little bit about traditional versus indie or independent. Yeah. Maybe why you chose one over the other. When I self-published my fiction novel, really the main reason for me was that I was impatient. I wanted the gratification of holding a book in my hand. And at that time, I didn't think it'd be possible for me to accomplish that in any other way. I just thought there are so many talented writers out there and it's so hard to break into the field of publishing. And I just really talked myself out of it. But there are some really wonderful, viable indie authors that have the discipline and the drive and they do such amazing things. For me, I decided that if I wrote another book that I wanted to traditionally publish it so that I couldn't be impatient, so that I would have people looking over my shoulder saying, hey, have you thought about wording it this way instead? Or to ask me those good questions, but also to have that deadline. Because like I said, I'm a person who enjoys so many different things. I have so many hobbies. And then church ministry has a way of taking over where you can always you can always find more to do and then put the writing on the back burner because there's always more to do. Finally, when I was 38, I decided I want to have a book published before I'm 40. So I decided to start writing a book proposal and I worked at it and worked at it, but I kept talking myself out of it or putting it on the back burner. I've got two kids and one of them's in high school now. And so we're busy all the time with their extracurricular activities. And I just kept putting it off. And then very providentially, I checked the spam folder of my email inbox and had a request from an acquisitions editor. They said, if you have a book proposal, I would love to read it. Wow. And I, I wrote back and said, well, I have one, but it's not finished. And she very graciously said, well, once you finish it, send it to me. And so she gave me that nudge. And then she even checked in with me about a month later and said, hey, if I don't get that from you soon, we're not going to be able to discuss it before the new year because we're approaching our last board meeting of the year. And so that lit a fire under me to actually get the work done. Yeah. And so then I sent it into her and I was absolutely delighted. I didn't expect them to to entertain it, to truly entertain it because I had never traditionally published a book before. And so when they offered me a contract, I was just amazed. Um, But the process has been really wonderful. Um, I actually had the privilege of working with two different editors and to have each of their perspectives and to be able to figure out, no, this idea is important enough to me. I will fight for it. Or 
you know, maybe I need to rethink that or think a little bit more deeply has been really life-giving. Did they assign you an editor? Is that what they did? I had been approached by an editor. And so if the um, publication company accepted my idea, she was going to be my my lead editor. But then she suggested to me another editor just because I was new. Um, I had never traditionally published before. And just to make sure, you know, a lot of those typical pitfalls people might fall into, make sure that those things were cleaned up before it went to my, my lead editor. And that was really a gift for me. And you had this idea. So my, my guess is you've had, you had some stuff written because usually book proposals, yeah. they want like what, two, three chapters, I think. Yep. So you had a couple of chapters. You obviously you had an out, you had your other chapters at least outlined because you got to yeah. have that in your, in your thing. So from the time they accepted your proposal to the time you like turned everything in, how, what was your turnaround time like that? In my proposal, I had said I would get my manuscript fully to them within six to nine months of signing on the dotted line. And about a month or two after we signed the contract, COVID hit. Oh no. <laughs> and, and with it went all of my creative energy. Um, we were, we were having to pivot and worship, learning how to live stream and be YouTube evangelists and mm-hmm. things we, we never expected for ourselves. And so a lot of my energy went into that. And so I ended up, I think it was about nine or 10 months between signing the contract and turning in my initial manuscript. But I had to, I ended up having to rewrite the two chapters I had submitted because the COVID world had changed everything. Right. Um, I had talked in my, in one of my chapters on mealtime. Can you have life-giving meals if you're getting takeout or if you're eating at a restaurant or do they have to be made from scratch? I was kind of wrestling with that question. And then all of a sudden you couldn't go to a restaurant. Mm-hmm. And I had to ask myself, really, is the issue home cooked food versus takeout food? Or is it really the condition of our hearts when we eat and the things that, you know, can we still be distracted even if we made home cooked food? How can I be fully present with the people around me? And so yeah. I think it made the book better. Um, I had to go in and re rethink some of those things. Yeah, I think this pandemic is forever going to shift the way you know, the way that we write, we're really, I mean, it's going to shift everything, right? The way that we preach, the way that we teach, because you you have to take all those into consideration. And even as we go into 2022, we're two years out, which here, you know, the irony was at the beginning of this, most of the experts were saying, oh, we're looking at a two year, two, two and a half year window. And we're like, no, no way. Yeah. But it, it is shifting. Like even, you know, how I, how I preach and is we're hopefully you know moving into a post pandemic or post pandemic world. We're still even trying to figure out what that is going to mean. And so, yeah. like writing this book as it comes out, it's going to continue to be you know for whatever 10, 20 years down the road. Yeah, it will still continue to have that same. It's not going to be a short term thing. In other words, like you having to make all those adjustments. It's not like oh well, yeah. and, you know, in two years nobody will be able to relate to this. Well, yeah. and originally, as I was writing, um, I was really encouraged not to include COVID very much because the hope was that, <clears throat> excuse me, the hope was that it would would get better and we would resume our daily life. But the longer this has drawn on, I think the more clear it's become to everyone that even in the post-pandemic world, the way that we think about life has fundamentally shifted. My book, I hope, 
will be evergreen, you know, no matter how far removed we are from COVID when someone reads it, because I tried to get down into the why we do things. You know, right. why do we eat the way we do? Why do we avoid grief? Why do I get stressed out when I have unexpected free time? You know, a meeting gets canceled and I feel like I need to fill that space. You know, where does that come from? And to really ask those questions. And so the writing of the book was really a gift to me to intentionally stop and think about those things for myself. And I hope that that other people will find that to be true for them as well. Yeah, I don't think those questions are going away. Um, I mean, if anything, our world has sped up rather than slowed down, slowed yes. down because of the pandemic, you know, at its fundamental level. Like in some ways, you know, people are like, oh, that let's get things back to normal in the sense of I want to be able to go do things and, and that kind yeah. of stuff. But really it's it's sped up. You know, you think about change-wise. I was on social media last week and I just thought to myself, oh my goodness, could it possibly go any faster? Like I can't, I can't read faster. I can't study faster. I can't learn faster. Like it's just not going to happen. And you're, we're going to have to drill down and say, why do we do what we do and pick two or three? Cause you can't do them all. That's right. Yeah. And in my chapter on technology, I talk about that a little bit, how, we've created these technologies to make life easier for us to make tasks quicker, but then we expect because the tasks are quicker, we expect people to be able to accomplish more things. And so rather than making our lives easier, it actually has made our lives busier. Mm -hmm. You know, because with the podcast and stuff and promoting it, I had Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and LinkedIn and okay, this is too much. I need to narrow it down. I think it's one of those things where you just have to say, I'm going to do one or two. Yep. And I, and I feel like even with our, with our churches, we're going to have to, we're going to really have to simplify because this, this cafeteria style, I don't know. I feel like it's overwhelming. It is. I completely agree with that. Our, our church um, added live stream worship during the pandemic. And it was actually something we'd been talking about doing prior to COVID, but it just kept getting put on the back burner. There were other, you know, more pressing things. And suddenly that was the most pressing thing. Um, But just this last Sunday, we had multiple technical technical problems at the Mm -hmm. beginning of worship, you know, problems we never used to have or consider or worry about that aren't, are going to be with us forever. Right. It has created new problems, you know, has created new opportunities, but also with a new problem. Maybe talk about how the fact that you've got this opportunity came out of the weird divine divine way uh, here, some of your proposal, but what did, what did that writing look like for you? I know that you were in the middle of the pandemic and it had just hit and stuff like that, but were you you one of those, Hey, I have 30 minutes right now. Were you one of those, I'm going to block out a whole day. Like what did that yeah. writing process look like over the course of those nine, 10 months? You know, did it ebb or flow or? My writing process typically looked like I always block off Friday mornings. So I always have that space barring an emergency or something that comes up, but I try to make a, a block of time during that time. And then through the week, I tried, I tried to be reading things that were spurring my, my creative processes. I tried to find a little bit of time every evening to sit down and write. I I'm more of a morning person. Actually, I would prefer to write early in the morning, but I'm married to a night owl and um, I have one child that deals with insomnia. 
And so early mornings are not always the best time, even though that's what I would prefer. A little bit of time every evening, some solid writing time on Fridays. And then I, I found myself dealing with a lot more writer's block during COVID than what's mm -hmm. typical for me. And so I had to develop some processes for dealing with that. And typically, if I stared at the blank screen for too long, then I would say, okay, you need to be outside. You need to do something outside um, in the garden, take a walk, um, let my chickens out of their coop and let them run around for a little bit, something to get my mind in a different place. Yeah. And that was really helpful. So you're a writer on the screen. You're not like a pen and paper person. So I do a lot of it on the screen, but I did find that during those intense writer's block times, pen and paper was way better. If I could go sit on my back patio and write, that was very helpful to me. And I had a friend suggest that to me. And actually he said, get yourself a really nice pen, like a pen mm -hmm. that you love writing with. And so I went and bought my first fountain pen. And nice. yeah, so that's another tactic for um, dealing with the writer's block too, is that sometimes it's just like a blue light overwhelm. And so getting into pen and paper is, is really helpful. I'm very much a pen and paper. Like, and that's how I write my sermons too. I write my sermons yeah. pen and paper and then transfer them to, to notes. I started doing Julia Cameron's morning page helped me with some of my writer's block of, I'm not sure if you're familiar, are you familiar with her morning yeah. page. Yeah. Yeah. So for those of you people who don't know, you just write three pages, eight and a half by 11 longhand. And if you can't think of anything to write, you just write, I can't think of anything to write over yep. and over again. Kind of like when you were in grade school and they, your teacher gave you sentences, you know, like uh, that was never like punishment for me. I'm like, Oh, this is fun. And that's actually something that I have done too. Um, I wrote during one of the most intense moments of writer's block while I was writing, I actually typed on the screen, I am having writer's block right now, just to get my fingers moving and my mind thinking. And then you can go back and delete those things. Uh, but sometimes you just need to write some words. It is true. Just write any words because they'll start to work that part of your brain Yes, um, and, and get it and get it moving. I do find that. And then of course you mentioned being an introvert and I am also there's a certain amount, right? Where we want to think it first and then yes. write it. Sometimes that, you know, you find yourself staring off into space and then you're like, now, wait a minute. <laughs> yes. what, what I just wrote in my head was really good. How do I get it to the paper? Yeah. And I think that's all part of the writing process. Um, I had a professor in college and his class drove me crazy, but he used to say that if you can't write well, you don't think well. And I, I bristled against that, but I think the flip side is true that if I, think it through, then I can write it. Yeah. When my kids were still in, in high school, we had a long drive. I drove them to school and it was a long drive there. Long, So I wrote a lot of my sermons in my head while I was driving back and forth that way. Uh, I'm curious how, how your ministry and your writing flow together. Hmm. Like even now, of course, now you're book is done. I'm <laughs> guessing you're still writing a little bit. So how do you, yeah. how does that, how do they flow together? To I'm not very good at compartmentalizing things, so I can't really separate things very easily. But what I've been doing right now is that I've challenged myself to, to write an Advent reflection every Friday. And so yeah. I've been doing that. And I just gave myself an arbitrary deadline that Friday is my day that I will make sure that that's published. And so I've been doing that on my blog, but I find that the things that I'm reading for my writing projects end up connecting really well with 
the scripture texts and the things that I'm preaching. So there's a lot of overlap there where the sermon prep or the writing can mutually inspire the other, um, which is really exciting. We recognize that as divine providence, you know, Yes, that God is uh, bringing all those things together and weaving them. His hand is at work in all of them right now. What are you reading that's inspiring you, encouraging you, or are you reading something right now where you're to decompress? I so I recently read Land of Big Numbers by Taping Cheng. Tape. Oh. Ping Ching. She is Taping Chen is a reporter for the Wall Street Journal, um, but she comes from a Chinese background and culture. And so she wrote a collection of short stories, short fictional stories that are infused with Chinese culture. And it was just absolutely delightful. I devoured every one of them. And it was a nice breath of fresh air for me because I typically read theological or Christian mm-hmm. living or spiritual books. And so to uh, read some fiction was really nice. I am currently reading Radiant Church by Tara Beth Leach. Yeah, I just had her on the podcast not too long oh, ago. Nice. Yeah, I'm I'm enjoying that. But it's it's a slower read for me because I'm really savoring her thoughts and ideas. And so you can only read a few pages here and there at a time and then let them kind of percolate. Found I read, I had to, you know, a chapter at a time. That was about, yeah. that was yeah. about it. And then of course, when you're, pa- you're reading it and you're pastoring at the same time, you, know, you can't help but then to reflect on, okay, what, where's my congregation at with all of this? And yes. you know, how are we reflecting this image and, and those kind of things? So you can't help but to you know, personalize it and, and, and try to have to process it for your own context. Yeah. Yeah, most definitely. All right. So your book officially launches December. Yep. December 14th is oh, the 14th is the official launch day. They can get, they'll be able to get it anywhere, right? Will they be able to get it at yes. Barnes and Noble and yep. Amazon Barnes and Noble, Broadleaf Books's site. You can order it through your local bookstore. Anything you really hope, like what's your the big takeaway you hope that your readers will get from the sacred pulse? That is a wonderful question. I hope that in this book, there is at least one idea or sentence that gets a person to ask, what do I need to do? Or how do I make space to live a more wholehearted life of well-being? Because I I believe that that looks differently for each person. Each of us finds ourselves in a unique situation. You know, I'm raising two kids right now, but I think that there are things in here for people, whether they are married or not, whether they have children or not, to inspire those questions of what would life look like for me if it was a life of peace and well-being? That topic of well-being is not going anywhere for a while, so... Yeah. Well, and something that I've really tried to stress in my book is that it's not something we do. Mm -hmm. I'm a, I'm a type A perfectionist and I want a list of how to do it. How do I have a wholehearted life? If only it was that easy and it looks differently every day. And so I just hope that, that this book will, will have questions and wonderings for people to get them going on that journey. Yeah. Maybe women who are already in ministry, they, they're feeling that stirring to write to write in general or to write a book more specifically. Yeah. Um, so I guess just words of encouragement, advice that you would have for them. Um, I think that the number one word of encouragement I would offer is that the world needs your voice. We can often um, talk ourselves out of the importance of our words, whether it's our sermons or our writings, our blogs, our books, whatever it is. But God has given you a story and that story will bless someone. Um, even if it's just one or two other people. And so 
my advice would just be to tell it, write it, tell it, however God is calling you to do it. Set aside that time and try not to critique yourself to death. I know that's a, a really difficult, a difficult thing to do, especially if you're a perfectionist at all like me. There's time later for editing. First now is writing, and then you can come back and smooth out all those rough edges later. Oh yeah. Just do some free writing, Virginia Woolf type free yes. stream of consciousness. Yes. Get it on the paper. Well, thanks for coming on the podcast. This has been great. Thank I'm you excited. for having me.